Welcome, Bankless Nation, to this special episode that we are going to bring you here live on the Bankless YouTube and later on the Bankless Podcast. Today, we are talking about the conversation of do users care about decentralization? How do we onboard 8 billion people into crypto while also preserving our crypto values? Is that even possible? Is that a thing? And so today I'm excited to bring Kevin Owaki and Cooper Turley, uh, two people who uh, they're th- that are on differing ends of the spectrum where Cooper is really on the frontier of how crypto is getting adopted in new novel use cases. Uh, and then Kevin Owaki is a builder's builder, building out these systems that can scale up crypto values to hopefully scale to the whole entire world. And I think these two individuals have very unique perspectives as to how to actually adopt, get the world onto crypto systems in ways that, uh, that satisfy the needs of the users, but also while doing things the crypto way. And, and I want to have this conversation about what does it take to onboard the world and how much do we have to compromise along the way and do we actually have to compromise? So we are going to unpack the question of do users care about decentralization here on this bankless live stream panel. Uh, coming up next, we will bring that conversation right to you. But first, we got to let you know about Zerion. And I would be sharing my screen, but uh, you might notice that Ryan Sean Adams, uh, the AI, has a bug in the system today. So the AI is down. So it is just me today on this bankless panel. And so uh, Zerion, of course, our partners at Zerion needed to let you know that Zerion actually works across seven different chains and a- applications. Uh, and so whether you have your assets on the Ethereum L1, the Optimism L2, Arbitrum, ZK Sync, whatever L2 you prefer or what other L1 you prefer, Zerion can get you to those other chains. And so while there's many, many chains out there in the world, there's just one Zerion and Zerion can help you bridge across every single chain directly. So you can get exposure to optimism while, while never ever leaving Zerion. And you actually only have to switch networks when you need to sign a transaction. So you're not constantly switching back and forth between networks to see where your assets are. Are they on Arbitrum? Are they on Optimism? Zerion will give you a fantastic summary of where your assets are. It is the mission control for Web3, your intuitive DeFi portfolio manager. There is a link in the show notes, bankless.cc slash Zerion, for you to go check out and load up your wallet. So you can see your aggregate uh, Ethereum and just private key portfolio across all of crypto. And I think that's actually going to be a very relevant part of the conversation today is how do we have many chains? How do we have many ecosystems and all of them be usable all at the same time? So guys, we are going to get right into the conversation of do users care about decentralization? How do we preserve crypto values when we onboard 8 billion people into the world of Web3? So right after some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible, we will bring you Kevin Owaki and Cooper Turley. Here we go. So, you've got some money, but how are you going to use it? You want to spend. You, me, shopping, now, bro. When you know you should be saving. You'll never buy a house at this rate. But what if you could spend and save at the same time? For the enlightened kind, with inquiring minds, a new world awaits. Set yourself free with completely flexible, self-repaying loan technology. Supported on desktop and mobile, seize the power of Alchemix, allowing you to spend and save at the same time. Leverage your wealth without risk of liquidation. Take out a loan that repays itself. By using yield from your deposit to pay off your balance, your only debt is time. What was once inconceivable is now within your grasp. Are you winning, son? 
The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need L2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest and cheapest and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about the long wait times or high fees to get your assets back to the Layer 1. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic Oracle to securely transfer tokens from Layer 2 back to Ethereum. Across is critical ecosystem infrastructure and ownership is being handed over to the community. You can be a part of this story of Across by joining the Discord and becoming a co-founder and helping to design the fair, fair launch of Across. If you want to bridge your assets quickly and securely, Go to across.to to bridge your assets between ETH, Optimism, Arbitrum, or Boba networks. Living a bankless life requires taking control over your own private keys. And that's why so many in the bankless nation already have their Ledger hardware wallet. And brand new to the Ledger lineup of hardware wallets is the Ledger Nano S Plus, a huge upgrade to the world's most popular hardware wallet. With more memory and a larger screen, the Nano S Plus makes it easy to navigate and verify your transactions. And the paired Ledger Live desktop app gives you increased transparency as to what is about to happen with your NFT. What you see is what you sign. The Nano S Plus gives you the smoothest possible user experience while you're doing all of your crypto things. So go to the Ledger website to check out the features of the new Ledger Nano S Plus and join the waitlist to get yours. And don't forget about the Crypto Life card, also powered by Ledger. The CL card is a crypto debit card that hooks right into the Ledger Live app, right next to all the DeFi apps and services that you're already used to doing, like swapping tokens and staking. So if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, go to ledger.com, grab a Ledger, and take control over your crypto. Welcome, Bankless Nation, to this very special conversation about how do we expand, how do we project crypto values to 8 billion people. Here we have Kevin Owaki, an early contributor to Gitcoin, now host of the Green Pill podcast, which you might recognize on the Bankless RSS feed, which focuses on regenerative crypto, crypto economics and how we scale crypto values to the rest of the world. Also joined by Kevin Owaki is Cooper Turley, an operator and investor in the creator economy, co-founded Friends with Benefits, advises Audius, and a leading collector of music NFTs. And Cooper is also a crypto socialite and has been experiencing the intersection of crypto and modern pop culture, which is why both of these individuals are particularly suited to have this conversation where Kevin Owaki is deep into the bits, the ones and the zeros, and Cooper is deep <laughs> into the pop culture and we are trying to get these two worlds to come together and make sure that we scale out crypto to the rest of the world while preserving crypto values. Uh, guys, welcome to the conversation. I'm really excited to have you guys here. Thank you, man. Excited to be here. How do you do, fellow kids? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, you are not that much older than us. <laughs> okay, guys, I want to start the conversation here. Uh, we got Because we got to define the actual conversation. Decentralization versus usability. Are these things even opposites? And are these things the friction points upon which uh, this conversation uh, lies on? Cooper, I want to start with you. Yeah, I don't think they're opposites, but I do think a lot of the times user experience is directly correlated to how decentralized something is. You know, and to really state my opinion on this matter, I think that the more decentralized a product is, historically we've seen the harder it is to use. I don't think that's going to be the case forever, but I think that's sort of the grounds for this conversation. Kevin, what's your opinion? Yeah, I, I'd agree with what Cooper said. Yes, and um, I also think that decentralization is sometimes a really important part of the user experience. Um, if you're in a country where you can't trust the state and they seize your assets, then that's a pretty big user journey hiccup. Also, if you've got a system that's fragile and centralized and it goes down, that's a pretty big usability problem. 
That said, as someone who uh, has been building products in, since 2017, at least from the start, some of the tools to make project, make Web3 apps deeply usable um, to the standards of Web2 we just weren't out there when I first started building. And it's been getting a lot better with the launch of, of tools like the Graph and uh, various other libraries that have been built out there open source. So I think the usability of, of apps when you don't have those black swan events is catching up to the Web2 experience that we all kind of know and love. I think there, there was a nuance right there, Kevin, that I think we should definitely unpack. Uh, and that's really just about, uh, do we actually need to change the definition of UX and usability inside of Web3? Because like you said, if uh, you know centralization allows for assets to be seized, that's bad UX. Mm -hmm. But that's not really what you would think about when you think the words UX. You, when we, I think we, when we think about usability and UX, that's, we kind of stick inside of this Web2 mind frame of just like, is this website easy to navigate? Do the buttons do things instantaneously and do they do what I want them to do? Uh, so is totally. part of your answer kind of we need to actually change our definition of what usability is? Yeah, I mean, I think that usability can be all encompassing. If you'll allow me to just share my screen really briefly, I, I, I think a lot about this user experience hierarchy of needs, which starts with functionality in that like the interface doesn't break and it's not slow. Does it have the right information on it? Are the aesthetics hot? And does it allow me to do my job to be done is kind of at the top of that pyramid of usability. And so I, I think that, you know, one way to untangle this might be to go up and down that stack and kind of reason about decentralization versus usability at, at different layers of that stack. Cooper, you've met a ton of people who have come into the crypto space in 2021 and, and 2022. And I, I think this recent cohort of crypto people is particularly interesting because they're not, in my opinion, from what I've seen, they're not crypto people adopting crypto for crypto's sake. They're people adopting crypto to get something done, which really changes their priority about what an application means to them and, and especially with, with usability. So what have you learned from, uh, from helping this newer cohort of people come into this space? What do they care about? Uh, can you put us into the shoes of uh, a new user in, if that came in 2021 or 2022? Yeah, I would say it's really about ease of onboarding. You know, how many steps do I have to take to start using something today? You know, in most cases, it's really around NFT collecting for the most part. So whether that's minting an NFT, collecting an NFT, um, joining a token gated server, you know, these are some of the use cases that I see happening most commonly with new people to Web3. And right now that onboarding process has a lot of friction in it. You know, I think to Kevin's point, being able to recognize that the custodial nature of these wallets is extremely important is a new paradigm that we haven't had to consider before. You know, when I sign into Instagram with my email and my password, I don't think about, you know, what are the assets that I'm holding under the hood of my Instagram account? And so a lot of these Web3 products do come with a new novelty to them. But I think the core thing that I'm focused on from a UX perspective is how much time does it take for me to say, I want to use a Web3 app to actually be able to use it in a meaningful manner? And how do we make that window as small as possible? So when it comes to uh, going from Web 2 to Web 3, there's got to be this inevitable UX breaking based on just the new paradigms that, that we exist in. Just like you said, when you log into Instagram, you don't actually have to be worried about the assets that you hold. So may maybe this conversation is like, there is actually no way to avoid this breaking of the UX just because we're going from paradigm A to paradigm B. When you, when you are helping people onboard into the concept of like user sovereign sovereignty with their assets, like how easy is it to explain it to them that the powers of Web3 is kind of where this UX thing actually breaks down? 
take a, a first crack at that. I think um, connecting with a wallet instead of signing with an email has really clicked for a lot of people once they've actually been in the door. You know, when they go to two different apps and they're able to connect with that same wallet address, I think it makes sense to them. I think the difference there is that uh, more broadly, I don't think a lot of people are well suited to handle key management. You know, I think for people like us who have been in the space for a long time, we understand the, the notion of non-custodial versus custodial. We understand that giving out your private key is a non-starter. So many of my friends have gotten scammed from just like negligence, you know, scammers are getting pretty good out there and key management is definitely a tricky situation. And so to your point, I think that um, it's really important that we emphasize why connecting with a wallet is better than signing in with an email. But with that, I think comes with a lot of underlying risks. And I think that's kind of the core area of UX, I would say, that's really interesting to discuss here in this, this panel. Yeah. I, I would just add that, you know, when I think about this trade-off between decentralization and UX, I think a lot about, um, you know, in, in web one, everyone had to learn what a back button and a URL bar and a reload button. I think there was a stop button that was on browsers back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, we all had to learn these new paradigms for how to traverse information, what a hyperlink was. And people kind of got over the hump, right? And so when I think about web three, you kind of have to learn about private key management. You have to learn about backing up your private key, which is an important part of private key management. You have to learn about sending transactions, gas, um, layer two architecture, if you're gonna be in the Ethereum space. And so one of my big questions is, are we going to, uh, are, we, are we going to try to shim the web three user experience into web one and web two, which we already know people understand, or are we gonna teach people these new primitives around key management and, and gas? So like, are, are we headed towards a world in which a lot of these D apps are, a blockchain mullet with web two in the front and web three in the back? Or are we going all in on beautiful web three locks for everyone? And I think that you're going to see a stratification depending on the use case uh, between those two things. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's a mix of both. You know, my vision for what this works out as is that I think that most platforms will start custodial and they will front and cover the gas fees. So people do not have to do that themselves, but I do think it's always how it's going to function. And so if you are an advanced user, I believe that you can mature opt-in to sort of a more non-custodial approach there. But I think for the 8 billion people that David's referring to, my guess would be the mass majority of those people will never touch a private key in their lives. Yeah. You know, one interesting experiment out there is the burner wallet, which I think was one of the earliest L2 wallets that just kind of felt like an app that you could use, but it was so fast and so easy to send transactions on it without having to worry about the gas prices. I, I think that that's a great point that we can kind of like pull people along this, this custody route into having their own private keys and learning about those primitives. Cooper, when you've uh, helped people onboard and, and watch their experiences as having to use crypto infrastructure, again, to achieve a goal, not necessarily just to do crypto stuff for the sake of doing crypto stuff, do people feel feel the power that they that of holding private keys as in like is that something that they feel empowered by or do that does that feel something that they are encumbered by as in does the responsibility of having your own private keys is that a burden for for them or do they actually think that that's cool and neat and they get some excited this is only my personal experience but i have never once onboarded someone to metamask here in la and, and then seen them be like "Fuck yeah i have a personal key like every single time it's like bro what am i doing like what are these words like just get me through to the thing and then once i get into the thing they're like okay wait i need eth too and then it's like yeah okay go on coinbase and then if they want to send from coinbase to metamask you actually have to kyc so then they're uploading their documents it takes a couple minutes to process and then they're withdrawing and that whole process has been very difficult for me to be like, yo, you need to be in this world. And then I'll sit with them. And then it takes us 30 minutes to an hour of me being 
with that person, you know, physically for them to get started. Um, it's been tough, you know, to say the least. One of the things that I tease Bitcoiners the most is when they say that Bitcoin is going to take over the world is that I kind of tell them that, well, you guys kind of have already found all the libertarians that care about Bitcoin. Like there's not many left of you to really scale out Bitcoin to the rest of the world. And what I'm hearing from you, Cooper, is that that might also be true with people that get excited about having private keys and having control over their own money and assets. Kevin, do you think the powers of being your own custodian, having control of your own money and assets, maybe we've actually onboarded most of those people and the rest of the world actually might not be interested in those powers. What do you think about that? Um, I think a lot about drivers and barriers. So what's the job to be done that they're trying to accomplish when they hit the private key roadblock or the KYC roadblock? And, and, and those are the barriers. And so what are the drivers? Are the drivers enough to overcome the barriers? And the problem in 2017 was that you only had this like sort of libertarian fuck the government kind of attitude that made you want to get over those barriers. But now we've got uh, NFTs, we've got DeFi, we've got quadratic funding. So it's about continually lifting lifting up the bar or the drivers to get people wanting to incur the pain of learning about these new primitives to get them through the door. But I don't know, the developer, uh, take what I say with a grain of salt, because my audience at Gitcoin is mostly developers and people who already understand this stuff. So I think that I'm not really bearing the brunt of it in, in a way that someone like Cooper is. Yeah. And David, something I just thought about there is um, for all three of us on this podcast, we have a significant portion of our net worth in crypto. I think for the average person that's joining crypto every day now, they have less than $1,000, You know, in many cases, less than $100. And so when it comes to something like key management, I think the reason we're so passionate about it is because it's very meaningful to us. You know, if we lose that portion of our lives, we're getting hit with a serious, serious debt. For a lot of these people that are joining Web3 today, they're treating it almost like a burner experience in many ways, shapes, or form. You know, the most common experience I've seen is someone putting $1,000 of ETH in their MetaMask to go buy the dumbest JPEGs I've ever seen in my life on OpenSea. And that's all that they know. And so when you treat it with that mindset, I think that's why there's a different relationship with private keys because they don't see it as you know, the means to their financial freedom, they see it as speculative gambling for the short term. What about the onboarding experience from for other ecosystems? I, I've heard fantastic things about uh, the Phantom Wallet with Solana. Uh, Cooper, do you have any perspective as to how much of this is an Ethereum problem? It's not that much easier on Solana. I think it's incrementally better, but it doesn't drastically change the overhaul. I mean, you have a little bit better UI on Phantom. You're using a different token and it's a little bit easier to send and faster. But at the end of the day, I think the whole notion of setting up a private key and sending tokens to that wallet to be able to use it in the first place, I think is the core blocker that we get stuck on, irregardless of what ecosystem we're talking about. I think the, the meta conversation here is really about, will crypto change the world or will the world changed crypto. Obviously, like the internet changed the world uh, because we first didn't have the internet and then we had and then we had the internet and that changed everything. But we already have the internet now in the world of crypto and like now crypto is still kind of optional at this point. And so to perhaps to get crypto to 8 billion people, we actually have to change what crypto looks like in order for, for, for that to, to change the world rather than just like, well, crypto is so clearly useful that the world is just going to have to change to adopt crypto. Uh, what, what are your guys' perspective on this this uh, this friction? I think we should keep increasing the drivers and keep decreasing the barriers to get into crypto. One of my beliefs is that for 99% of the world, their financial lives is not their investments. They probably don't have that much savings. 
And we're very privileged if we have savings in this space at all, a net worth. Um, and, and so I'm a big believer that if you want to make have 99% of the world adopt Web3, then what you're going to need to do is hit them with a use case that is something that intersects with their financial lives. What does their financial lives intersect with? Jobs. We got to build this internet of jobs where people can earn crypto, earn their first crypto instead of buy their first crypto. Because 99% of the world, their financial lives is not their investments, it's earning. And a lot of times it's pretty tight. It's paycheck to paycheck. And so I think that it's really important to build Web3 earning experiences if we want to onboard a lot of humanity. And I just think it's so cool that um, Santi Siri of UBI, there are people in Argentina that are living off of UBI in Santi Siri. I think it's so great whenever I meet a developer at an ETH event and they tell me, oh, I got my first coins at I Gitcoin and like you guys got me through three months of the bear market last time. So I think earning is going to be a huge blow away use case Then its time has not come yet at all. I absolutely love that. Yeah, and I can really echo that sentiment here in LA too, because one of those drivers that does get people to go through the hoops of downloading MetaMask and putting ETH into their wallet is the ability to sell their creative work. You know, I think NFTs have been such a core driver to this chapter of Web3 because a lot of people are earning income through selling creative work on chain. And I think that ability for someone to have a new marketplace and a new medium to be able to transact with their peers has been, in my opinion, the single biggest driver of success in Web3 over the course of the last year. Cooper, you're a big um, builder in the world of the, the creator economy, which I, I think is what more or less you alluded to right there. Can you just talk about uh, just the drive of adoption that comes from sustainable revenue generating uh, parts of, of Web3? Like, is this, do you think this is going to be responsible for like 5 to 10% of adoption or like 50 to 60% of adoption? Like, where, where, how important does this aspect of actually being able to earn money natively in Web3 drive adoption from your perspective? I think it's the fundamental building block. You know, when I look across the board of my friends who have retained Web3, it's been those who have been able to consistently sell their work on chain. You know, it's one thing to buy Ether and have that in your wallet and see it go up. It's another thing to go and buy an asset on OpenSea and then flip it for a little bit of profit. But the people who are most involved with Web3 today are those who started out by selling an NFT or two, using that money to then buy another JPEG and then continue that cycle. And I think once people realize that Web3 is the most opportune place for you as a creative to be exploring, you know, relative to any other marketplace that exists today. Once you take a couple footholds into that place, you know, it's not only the ability to mint and tokenize your work, it's sort of the community spirit around it. And so when I sell a work on foundation or when I sell a work on OpenSea, there is people on Twitter that are like coming and giving me flowers every time. I think that's where we start to get into sort of the stickiness of this is actually more on sort of, you know, like how, how personal of a relationship do you have with this ecosystem and how much of a core role does it play in your life? But Cooper, in your answer, you talked about things like like OpenSea, which, uh, you know, I wouldn't even classify OpenSea as fully Web3. Uh, uh, they have uh, heard from members of the OpenSea team as they kind of consider themselves Web 2.5, right? Like you own your own assets. Uh, your assets are, are coming from an place external to OpenSea, but OpenSea can still censor your NFTs. They can still, like, you know, take like close off your, your account. And so these are some of the compromises that we've had to make on our crypto values in order to have like an entire bull market in NFTs. Like imagine whether or not, like without OpenSea, would we have even had an NFT ecosystem or, or an NFT bull market? So in, to my mind, that's an indication of just like, oh, we do need to compromise in order to have this ecosystem. Uh, we we had like the Looks Rare platform, the more decentralized version of, of OpenSea, which isn't even fully decentralized, uh, still actually hasn't gotten the adoption that OpenSea has. 
So, like, where do you see the role of compromising in, in the world of trying to get these people onboarded into, into platforms that enable them to be self-sovereign builders? Yeah, I think it goes back to how easy it is for the platform to use. You know, the reason that OpenSea is winning right now is because it has a superior brand and it has a good product. An analogy I like to make here is when SushiSwap forked Uniswap, the reason that that project went differently is that Uniswap was driven by its code and its underlying protocol parameters. It was not necessarily driven by the product experience itself. You know, OpenSea isn't really innovating too crazily on a technical level from a protocol standard point. It's winning because it has a strong product and you can go and you can search for these things and the UI stays up most of the time and you have trust that what you're buying is reliable. And I think it's a very different standard when we start to compare, you know, what is the difference from a Uniswap versus SushiSwap fork from an OpenSea versus Looks Rare? The Uniswap versus SushiSwap is on a protocol level with the smart contracts. OpenSea versus Looks Rare is for the most part on a product level. Kevin, how do you yep. see the, this trajectory? Uh, like in the, in the future, how do we build out systems that don't compromise on our values when it's so obviously easy to onboard more and more people if mm -hmm. you just take shortcuts? Well, you're probably asking the wrong guy because I built Gitcoin Web 2.5 back in the day. <laughs> Let me put my hand to the sky and say sorry that I did it that way. But the tools truly weren't there in 2017. Um, uh, yeah, so my experience is that um, Gitcoin's built Web 2.5. When you go to uh, Gitcoin.co, it's a server that we manage that's centralized. Um, spent a lot of time during the bear market just trying to survive. And we talked about rewriting it to be decentralized. And it just was like always number seven on the list. And um, now that we've raised the round from Paradigm and kind of like fully committed to becoming a DAO, we're in the middle of, we just announced Grants 2.0, which is going to be a protocol-based approach to Gitcoin Grants. And it's going to take all the tech debt and debt that we have from the old product and flush it out the window. And the hope is that Grants 2.0 is a credibly neutral foundation for Gitcoin grants in the future. So I think that we're kind of like right in the middle of that transition. And, you know, what we did in 2017 got us off the ground. It made us into somewhat of a household name in the Ethereum space, but it's not the future of credibly neutral public goods funding. And that's a very bitter pill to swallow, um, to have to totally reset on your product and go in another direction. But luckily we've got the right community momentum and capital to make it happen now. And so we're just really investing in, in reinventing, uh, turning the company into a DAO, or I guess like Gitcoin grants into a DAO. And so we're right in the middle of that transition. So uh, I guess I'm the wrong person to answer your question is the short answer of uh, to that. Uh, Gitcoin right now is very web 2.5, but we are trending towards becoming web three, which I think is kind of like an interesting counterexample to OpenSea, which is just kind of on these this like IPO route um, Gitcoin is on the route to becoming a DAO. And there's like a counterfactual version of the world in which the teams could have chosen to go in a different direction. So, but um, I, I think that we made the right choice by deciding that Gitcoin grants was going to become a DAO. Yeah, it's definitely the harder path, but I think definitely the more admirable one. And when I think of what makes a product Web3, quote unquote, I think about whether you're connecting a wallet or signing in with an email. And so to mm. your point, David, I would agree that something like OpenSea is, you know, Web 2.5 in many senses, but to the average user, the fact that you're coming in and signing in by connecting your wallet, I think that's the level of depth to which they consider that conversation about whether or not this um, is a crypto product. For, for me, it's the forkability. It's, can I go to this code base and fork it and set up my own instance of it if 
my right to exit if I don't if I don't like the system as it exists. And you don't have that with OpenSea. You kind of have it with Gitcoin, but you have to deal with our clunky code base. Um, I think Austin Griffith is the king of forkability. I've always worked with him and he's always like, you know, fork this template that I made or fork this app that I made. And that's kind of what we aspire to right now at Gitcoin with Grants 2.0. I think you see the difference in framing there too, because as we start to consider 8 billion people in Web3, the amount of people that even understand what a fork is or how to even do that in the first place, in my opinion, is going to be like super marginal. And that's not to say that it's not important, but yeah. I think that's where like the lanes start to differ, right? It's like, what is the depth to which people can actually choose to do something with these systems if they want to? Back to my yeah. earlier point, I don't think most people will ever be able to do so or even know like what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's true that those people don't understand forkability, but they all get the sense that they're trapped in Facebook wall, Facebook's walled garden. So I think there's an intermediary audience in between the 8 billion people and the protocols, and that's the developers that are building on top of them and the early adopters. Um, like, are they, are they able to fork the protocol and create a better customer experience for the rest of the world based off of that forked protocol is like the intermediary kind of wedge between those two audiences, I think. Kevin, can you talk about the 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 right to exit or the ability to exit and how that fits into the definition of like Web3 values? Can you just for, for listeners that are new to this concept, can you kind of unpack that for them? Yeah, totally. Um, so basically, forkability and the right to exit is basically like I could leave. Imagine a world in which you could leave Facebook and you could not only download your data, but you could take your social graph with you to another Facebook clone that had different values that wasn't run by Zuckerberg that was run by like anti Zuckerberg or something like that. And so there's this transportability of your information from network to network um, that is involved in your right to, to exit that doesn't exist in web two. And one of the dreams, the big dreams of web three is that I could take my social graph and my relationships with me from site to site without having to get trapped in anyone's walled garden. So um, that right to exit is, is, is that, but it's also anyone being able to fork a code base of a protocol and launch their own version of it, which you know can be a friendly fork, which means that you can, the, the team that initially launched the protocol can merge those changes back upstream if they're a really good idea, or it could be an unfriendly fork, like a sushi swap where it's like, we're just gonna compete with you. Um, and I think that really the value that we're kind of like, chipping away at here is the consent of the governed, right? In political philosophy, there's this idea that the consent of the governed is the only legitimate basis of governance, as opposed to like the divine right of kings in like the 16th century. And um, the only consent of the governed we have with these Facebook, with these giant tech monopolies is that tick, I read the terms of service. And no one fucking read that terms of service. It's 35 pages long. You can't negotiate the terms of service. It's totally asymmetric power between the consumer and the people who've put the platform out there. And so the idea of not only giving users governance of the platform formally with governance tokens, but also allowing forkability creates that consent of the governed feedback loop, which hopefully will lead to better products and better consumer experiences because users can exit if you're fucked. I don't know if I can curse on this. If you're fudging it up, they can they can exit. And I think that it all goes back to consent of the governed for me and forkability and right to exit are all just parts of evening out that power asymmetry and restoring the consent, consent of the governed and therefore the legitimacy of these products. And to, just to just to reiterate and, and unpack that a little bit further, the, the idea mm. is that if your code base is open source, if, it's, if the code is free for all developers to iterate on as they see mm -hmm. fit, 
the idea, the hopeful idea, the optimistic idea is that the developers of this open source ecosystem will trend towards crypto values over time. And what crypto values are, in my, at least in my perspective, what Web3 values are is kind of what you said, the consent of the governed, as in our Web3 protocols reflect the values of the users that compose them. Very much unlike Facebook, right? Like the values of the, of the users are not freely expressed into the design of the systems. But in Web3 systems, the idea that we can fork these things into newer and newer systems ensures over time that there's some sort of alignment behind the values of the people and the, the systems that enable these people. Now, Cooper, my question to you is that <laughs> who, who of these new users cares about this concept? Like how, how, val how crypto values woke are the people that come into the crypto in 2021 and 2022. And do you see them like trending towards crypto values or do they not care? This was uh, exactly where I was gonna take it. So I'm glad you asked that question. I think that being able to have governance is extremely powerful, but to your point, I think the vast majority of people will never use it in the first place. You know, the extent to which governance conversations happen in the terms of creator economy is what color should the t-shirt be? Um, where should we host the meetup? You know, like things that are like, you don't need tokens really for that. But I think that people are just like, they hit a ceiling in terms of like what governance can actually do for them. And so I think there is a degree of education that's like, yo, governance is valuable. Like it's not only the color of the t-shirt or like the logo that we use, but it's like a fundamental change to the underlying protocol or product. I don't think many people are aware of the fact that they can have that level of influence on a project. I think it's only because we've seen the power of on-chain governance and sort of the social and financial dynamics that come with that, that we understand, you know, the depth to which this is so important. Guys, I have a bunch of more questions that mm. I want to get to, such as what aspects of Web3 UX actually out of the box trumps Web2 UX, as well as, is this really just a, like a scalability issue? Like imagine if we had instant fee, instant and free transactions, how much of our UX problems are solved. And then also I want to ask you guys about your favorite UX experience in the world of Web3. Do you have a particular app that comes to mind about like that really just like embodies good user experience in this new world? These are the questions that are coming up next right after we get back from some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. If you're going bankless, you need MetaMask. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi without giving up custody over your private keys. MetaMask is both a secure in-browser wallet and also a secure bridge for your hardware wallet. You can now trade tokens on any DEX or aggregator. MetaMask Swap gathers real-time pricing information across all the DeFi exchanges, allowing you to select your best price while getting all the MetaMask benefits of self-custody, lower gas costs, and increased transaction success rates. MetaMask also has a fantastic mobile wallet that I use when I'm out and about which I use to collect POAPs, NFTs, and do all my DeFi things while I'm away from home. If you haven't downloaded MetaMask, you gotta try it out. Web3 wouldn't be the same without it. Download MetaMask for desktop and mobile at metamask.io and load up your Trezor, Ledger, Lattice, or Keystone hardware wallets so that they too can get into the world of Web3. Polygon is Ethereum's largest and most vibrant scaling solution to date. With millions of monthly users and all of the biggest DeFi apps, the Polygon ecosystem has turned into a blossoming metropolis of DeFi activity. Transactions on Polygon are quick and cheap, allowing users the freedom to achieve their DeFi goals, all while being economically anchored to Ethereum. 
But Polygon isn't just the proof of stake sidechain. The Polygon team is building a suite of scaling solutions, including Polygon Hermes, Maiden, Nightfall, and Zero, all with different design choices in order to be optimized for all possible crypto use cases. If you're a developer who wants to build on the Polygon ecosystem, go to the link in the show notes to check out their fantastic documentation. And if you're a user who just wants to experience fast and cheap DeFi, you can bridge over your ETH or other tokens and start playing around with any of the thousands of applications that are available on Polygon. Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. All right, guys, we are back to our conversation about how we preserve crypto values, which I personally hold dear, and how do we make 8 billion people also hold those things dear? And so... I wonder, uh, Kevin, you've been a, a builder in the space and you mentioned uh, kind of having to compromise with, with Web3 values in getting your, your application out the door. And I'm wondering how you kind of navigated those choices. What, what things would you, would you absolutely never ever compromise on and what things are easier and more okay to compromise on that you might see other you know, upstarts, sure. uh, new companies, new platforms compromising on in order to get um, their, their viable business out the door? Yeah. I mean, I'm really proud that in 2017 that everyone was doing ICOs and we just like didn't have any of that noise. We just built a community that people loved. And that sounds like an obvious choice in hindsight, but at the time it was a real counter trend bet to, um, to not do an ICO. Um, I do think that back in 2017, when we started, just the tools weren't there yet. The graph wasn't there yet. Scaffold ETH wasn't there yet. There just wasn't the tools. And, and so maybe what happened with Gitcoin's launch isn't super relevant to what builders out there are, are doing today. Um, I think that there's there's definitely a different set of trade-offs today where you can have a pretty close to Web2 UX with a Web3 wallet. Um, and I think that that's really cool. Things that I would not compromise on is I don't ever want to have custody on users' funds. I don't want the liability. I don't want to be accused of, of having access to those funds. And so we just, we just always designed it so that we never had custody of, of users' funds. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, a, a, a clear trade-off that we had to make was back in Gitcoin Grants round 12, we, because the Gitcoin platform was centralized and there is a sanction against certain sanctioned nations, we did have to shut down a grant that was connected to one of those sanctioned nations. And I know that that caused a big controversy among the Web3 community that's connected to, to that nation and to that community. And that was a trade-off that we uh, were coerced to make because of the, the regulatory regime in the United States. But it's a clear trade-off that we had to make because we're centralized. And I'm, I feel for everyone that it affected, I, I truly do, um, that, that you know, they can't participate in quadratic funding and public goods funding because of, because of that. So those are the trade-offs that come to mind to me. But I will note that uh, in 2022, there's really great tools to get your tool off the ground, decentralized, and you shouldn't have to make the same trade-offs that I made in 2017. Yeah, I actually wanted to pull on that because that was a question that came from from one of my friends when uh, organizing this agenda is the importance of dev tooling 
to help solve UX issues. And so mm. I think from what I've gathered, there's actually like two layers of building. First, you got to build the apps to make the apps usable. But that job is done uh, a lot easier if there's a lot of dev tooling, which also needs to be built. Kevin, can you talk about and unpack just why, the importance of dev tooling when it comes to making usable apps? Yeah, I mean, you know, imagine you were trying to to launch this podcast with only sticks and stones. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's t- it's hard to focus on your audience and providing value to them when you don't even yourself have the right tools in order to to ship to them. And you know, some of my favorite dev tools are Scaffold ETH, which allows you to get a end to end D app from smart contract to front end interface up within a minute. Uh, I think the graph is really great for querying relational data. I'm really excited about what Ceramic is going to do for Web3 profile data. And so we're kind of starting to see these tools develop. Oh, in the one of the things that really like, I'm, I'm so sure that crypto is going to beat TradFi. And it's because every new money Lego that is built in this ecosystem enables us to do something new. And then the permutations of all the different money Legos of what you could build grows exponentially. There are hackers that can walk into ETH Denver, a weekend hackathon this weekend and build something in a weekend that it would take a bank $100 million and 1,000 people to do 10 years ago because there's so many money Legos that are just out there open source and there's such less cruft in the open source financial system. So the the amount of what's possible to build grows exponentially with every new money Lego that's put out there. And that's why I'm so sure that Web3 is going to win eventually. The progress is exponential. So this uh, the question of this episode is: Do users care about decentralization? You know, like extrapolating, it's like we have crypto values that we believe that we embody, and how do we export these values to eight billion people? And a lot of this is coming off the backs of like the alt layer one summer, uh, Solana, Avalanche. A lot of these decentralization compromised ecosystems gained a ton of adoption. Uh, but in my mind, they compromise on some of the values that make crypto tick. Decentralization being being the big one. Um, but we also have layer twos coming out that, in, in my mind, help preserve decentralization at scale. And, and Kevin, what you were talking about with just these money Legos offering optionality to devs, uh, a, a question back to you again, Kevin, is, is this just like a short-term problem? Is this just the problem that we would expect the first 15 years of crypto to have? And over the long term, it's just we just build our way out of it? Um, sorry, I don't think I understood the question. Is it is the problem of not being able to uh, project crypto values to 8 billion people just something that we would only consider in the first 15 years of crypto because we just haven't built out mm. the own solutions for it? Yeah, there's a couple of questions tangled up in that. And I know you don't want me to ask a question back to you, but I mean, I guess like the question is, why do we want to propagate crypto values back to the world is that we think the world would be better if it had more crypto values, self-sovereignty, anti-fragility in it. Yeah, I, th- I think that, I think the answer is yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. In broad strokes. Yes. Um, but I do think that like to actually answer your question, the, the utility is the Trojan horse for the values. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, every time you use quadratic funding, um, on Gitcoin, you start to see that, oh, public goods are actually fundable. Like there's actually momentum here. It's not just this like dead space that no one's that no one's working on. Every time an artist makes more in a week off of an NFT than they did off of a year of Spotify scales, you start to see, oh my gosh, 
a better world is possible for funding the arts. And I think that the utility is really the Trojan horse for the values. And you're right, in the first 10 years of crypto, the only utility is like the libertarian fork the government like type stuff, which like all due respect to libertarians, I believe sovereignty is is very um is very important. Um and as we have more and more utility out of coming out of the ecosystem, I do think that there's there's going to be more opportunities to Trojan horse, more sovereignty and more of those values into the world from there. Cooper, I want to ask this next question to you is uh, what about Web3 actually has good UX? Uh, I, th I think the obvious answer that, that comes to mind is, well, you get to own your own assets, which has trade-offs. This can also be a bad UX. But is there any, while, while you've observed your own uh, operations in the world of Web3 and also the people that you've helped onboard, what is universally like given the thumbs up by people in, in crypto? Is there anything come to mind? I would say universal login, you know, one login to every app that you ever use makes a lot of sense to people. I think a digital backpack is cool. The fact that I can like own tangible financial assets that all live in one place. You now, even if they're across a variety of different industries is really exciting to people. And then more broadly, I think we'll get to this point, but token gated access, you know, as a primitive, basically the assets that I own, allowing me to enter different physical and digital spaces. I think those are some of the core primitives that people have been really excited about. Kevin, same question to you. What, what has what tailwinds does Web three have when it comes to UX? Open source. I mean, I think that just the exponential money Legos that are available to implement all of those things is so important, and it's why you've seen more innovation in Web three in the last two years than you've seen in banks for the last thirty. Like, what has the bank done? Like, invented the ATM in the last thirty years, um, and maybe found a way to to milk people for for more profits. So um, yeah, also very excited about universal logins. I'm excited about non-skeuomorphic use cases of crypto, things like Coordinate, uh, things like quadratic funding, and and just things that that weren't possible in the old paradigm. Because I think that that's where the breakthrough the breakthrough use cases are going to come from. I actually uh, add one more on here too. People love the idea of secondary markets and on-chain royalties. I feel like that's what I talk to creators they get really excited about. The fact that they don't have mm. to go like manually collect from anyone and that it just happens automatically. Mm. It's like kind of a nuanced one, but people actually really resonate with that. Totally. Is there any uh, Web3 application, Web3 website or company or project or whatever that when you look at that, you go to uh, whatever, wherever it is, whatever website, and you log into it and you're like, wow, this, this just feels so awesome. This UX is fantastic. I feel really empowered as a user. Anything in the world of Web3 that really stands out as they did it right? Um, Cooper, I'll start with you. I think the two I'd call out here are Foundation and SoundXYZ. You know, Foundation's been the one when I show new people here in LA about like a crypto product. They're like, oh, this just looks and feels like something that I would use normally. It just happens to be built on Web3. And then from the music NFT side of things, you know, the audio player on sound with that audience tab, there's just some social choices that were made there that were really good. And I guess as a third one to round it out, um, Mirror, I think is fantastic from like a publishing standpoint. It's a Web3 product, but they do a lot to really like extrapolate how Web3 it is to where if you want to make an NFT on Mirror, you just click a button, you say, I want 10 copies, upload this JPEG here, and then press a button to mint it. And it's more of a widget like experience than it is like you having to do anything on a contract level. Kevin, same question to you. Yeah, great question. Um, I, I want to yes and Cooper's answers. Those are all really great. I do think that one one tool that I'm continuously impressed with is Snapshot, which is where a lot of DAO governance votes happen. Just 
the repeatable off-chain governance stuff that they've built, I just think is like the amount of the ecosystem that depends on Snapshot for its DAOs, I think is immense. And we should give them a lot of credit for the work that, that they've done in making that a reality. Um, I also think Gnosis Safe. I, Gnosis Safe has just become a pure part of my day-to-day and week over week, managing funds in a Gnosis Safe, being able to connect it with Wallet Connect and all of these different dApps. I think that it's maybe not the most aesthetically beautiful interface in the world, these two apps that I'm talking about, but they're so purely functional in getting the job to be done of managing assets or voting in decentralization uh, that, I, that I'm just compelled by, by how seamlessly they, they work and how much of like a core money Lego they've become for the space. So I think Snapshot and Gnosis Safe for me. I definitely co-sign Snapshot. I think the interesting thing to call out about Gnosis Safe is you know, on the protocol level, Gnosis Safe is fantastic. It's like a fundamental building block. I've noticed that there's actually a new chapter of products being built on top of Gnosis Safe just to make it easier to use. There's um, a couple of companies called Coop, Castle, um, you know, Metalink's one that comes to mind here. There are a couple of companies that are basically like all routed on the back of Gnosis Safe at the core and then just making it operationally easier on top. Utopia falls into this category, Parcel falls into this category. I think it's interesting to recognize that something that's such a core building block like Gnosis Safe. I mean, I totally agree with you, Kevin. I'm in Gnosis Safe every single day, but there's things that we need to do to make it easier. Like right now, if I want to collect an NFT with a friend through a Gnosis Safe wallet, I can't connect to most of these sites. Like the wallet connect integration is, is very tricky. You can't sign messages in Gnosis Safe right now, which means I can't even get started on a lot of these NFT protocols. And so I think there's definitely improvements that we can make on this sort of UX question to make something as powerful as a multi-sig more tangible for the average user. Totally. What would you say is the lowest hanging fruit UX problem that you wish the industry could solve? Like what is the thing that everyone is running up against that just frustrates them? Does anything come to mind? I mean, my audience at Gitcoin is like web three developers who are by definition already further down this rabbit hole. So I don't know. I feel like this is, this is a better question for you, Coop. Yeah, I would say uh, fiat on-ramping would probably be mine. You know, I think that um, it's easy to buy crypto. It's not easy to buy it in a non-custodial fashion. And I think all the solutions that are out there do not let you easily get ETH into your wallet in one click. And I think that's the single biggest hurdle. I think people are fine with private key stuff. It's annoying, but it's not like tricky. It's just like when it comes to actually funding the wallet itself that I think people get blocked a lot of the time. Yeah, I can imagine that problem actually getting worse as we go into a layer two ecosystem because we need ETH to go to a wallet on a particular chain and mm-hmm. these all these uh, exchanges need to enable all these chains. And there's uh, the idea about the layer two revolution is that there's going to be many, many, many chains. So how do we get these fiat on-ramps to be able to deposit gas money across any sort of arbitrary number of chains? I think it's going to be a, a, a tough, tough hurdle to overcome. But when it does then it means every single chain is actually uh, available to enable users left and right. Um, so. And off-ramps. I think and it's the same for off-ramps too. You know, right now, if I sell an NFT on foundation, the ability for me to actually put that into my bank account is a pretty difficult experience. And I think making that flow easier where I can top up a wallet and then easily cash out if I want to, I think that's actually more of an important question than um, you know, private key management. Kevin, I think this is going to be one of our, our last questions. And I'm going to throw this one to you is, um, again, going back to the concept of putting crypto values into 8 billion people's brains, how do we preserve decentralization? How do we preserve user sovereignty? 
uh, how, but how do we actually do that? As in, do we want users to be consciously thinking like, oh, is this app decentralized? Am I in control of my own assets? Or do we want to actually take that cognitive load off of the user and just have that be the water that they swim in? Is that even, is that even possible? And, and, or is it actually our responsibility to just preach about these new values of the Web3 age and trying to convince as many people to get on board with that? Yeah, I think preaching might have a net negative effect. Yeah. So I, I would, I would, I, I think we really need to use you, the utility of these D apps to Trojan horse in these values and just show them that hope for sovereignty and for public goods and for decentralization, anti fragility is all possible. And I think that we've got to deliver D apps that solve problems for people in the year 2022 that exist today, and that and that those values are utility. Our, our Trojan horse in from the utility. And that takes me to how do we make it easy as possible for developers to create the next wave of innovation? How do we give them business models? How do we give them the money Legos? How do we identify the use cases? And how do we build a talent pipeline? No one has enough developers or designers right now, a talent pip pipeline of people who want to work on this space. And so that's kind of what I'm focused on right now. It's empower the people who are going to create the utility and then the utility will Trojan horse in the value, I think. So is it really all about developers? As in, if we can just give the developers the tools to uh, ensure that what they build is aligned with Web3 values that, well, then they can build platforms that scale those values out to the users? If you're asking the founder of Gitcoin if it's all about developers, I'm going to say, hell yeah, <laughs> I think so. Nice. I would take that a step further and say, um, I think it's about making the tools easy enough to use for someone who has never coded a day in their life to actually spin up a Web3 product or service. This is something as simple as saying, if you hold an NFT, you can enter this venue. I think right now, if I want to do that, I need to have a dev team with it. And I think the testament to whether or not Web3 would be adopted is how easy we can recreate almost a Shopify-like experience or a WordPress or a Substack experience where I don't need to be technical in any capacity to benefit from the foundation that Web3 has built. Hey guys, final question. And thank you guys so much for spending some of your time here on the Bankless live stream. We really appreciate your guys' perspectives here. So, so final question is, um, what W do you really hope crypto, the industry of crypto has in 2022? Cooper, I'll start with you. I mean, I'm obviously extremely biased here, but I think music is the vertical I'm most focused on. And um, this is one that I think is going to have a breakout moment. And I think the reason for that is not because I hold a shit ton of music NFTs, <laughs> but I think that there is a very real wave about artists saying, I don't want to be in a label anymore. And I think Web3 is a clear alternative to that. So I'm very excited to explore what that path looks like. Kevin, what W do you hope the crypto industry achieves in 2022? Um, I'm really big on regenerative crypto, crypto that's good for the world. And I think that that is both a means in itself, a, a means uh, and an end. And I do think that uh, there's a lot of skepticism about crypto out there, which I think is is righteous. And I do think that if we want to create a better world with crypto, then, and we want to show the world that we're creating a better world with crypto, we actually have to create that world. And so I'm really focused on this thing called impact DAOs, which are DAOs that have positive externalities for the space um, and for the world at large. And that impact can be financial, like Bitcoin grants funding public goods. It can be on identity and, um, and income, like UBI and proof of humanity, or it can be on the vector of paying down climate change. 
like climate DAO. So I'm really focused on impact DAOs. I don't know that 2022 will be the year for them, but I do think that at a time in which governments are trying to figure out how they're going to regulate crypto, if we can put our best foot forward by showing how crypto can be better for the world, build Web3 era institutions that fund public goods and regenerate the world, then I think that that's a really good step forward for the space. Nice. Can I add uh, one more in there, David? That I just thought of. Go for it. I think it's really relevant to this medium, but tokenized media, you know, being able to collect versions of podcasts, blog posts, you know, whatever it might be. I think that there's going to be a really big wave around tokenized media. I'm excited for that to have a little bit of a limelight. Mm. I can confirm. So guys, thank you so much for coming on this live stream. I really appreciate this conversation. This is something that I think the entire industry needs to, needs to have conversation. The entire industry needs to have and needs to be aware of and hopefully can start to solve some of these uh, patches in our apps to make sure that they stay aligned with the values that we created when Satoshi mined the first Bitcoin block. So Cooper, Kevin, thank you for coming on this live stream. Appreciate it. Thank you, Peace Matt. It was fantastic. Cheers. Guys, of course, none of this was financial advice. I don't even think we talked about specific crypto assets or anything of that nature. But even if we did, it wouldn't have been financial advice. So thank you for, for bearing with us. Uh, I don't know the, the closer as well as Ryan does, but we are headed west. We're on the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thank you for joining us on the Bankless Journey. Cheers. 